Today's scripture reading comes from the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 6-15. through 15. Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you have decided to, in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to bless you abundantly, so that in all things at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. As it is written, they have freely scattered their gifts to the poor. Their righteousness endures forever. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. This service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of the Lord's people, but is also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. Because of the service by which you have proved yourselves, others will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your, your confession of the gospel of Christ, and for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone else. In, and in their prayers for you, their hearts will go out to you, because of the surpassing grace God has given you. Thanks be to God for in, for the, for in his indescribable gift. This is the reading of God's word. It's my privilege to introduce our guest speaker today, Pastor Sam Kim. I believe he's preached for our church uh, numerous times, so he probably doesn't need a long introduction, but he's obviously a friend uh, of church and so a great brother. Uh, he is a senior pastor currently at Good News Church in Manhattan and continues to serve faithfully there. And he is obviously also a, a father and a, a husband. He has a lovely wife and lo two lovely daughters. I think we've met them a few times, obviously, at church as well. But he is preaching for us today with the topic of sowing generously. So thank you, Pastor Sam. Good afternoon. Uh, hang on one sec. It's a little loose. My ear's not too big. Um, great to be here. Uh, thanks always for the invitation. And uh, my wife and kids are not with me, so I can speak freely about her today. Uh, today, I want to talk about money, okay? Uh, I've been thinking about money a lot these days. And uh, my guess is a lot of you also think about money. And more specifically, I've been thinking about the nature and the power of money uh, and our relationship to money. Why is it that money can cause us so much anxiety? Why is it that money has so much power over us? Why is it that money is such a source of motivation for us to, to work harder and to do things? Why is it that money is a very common source of conflict, uh, not only in, uh, I guess, business relationships, but even intimate relationships and marriage relationships and family relationships. I think when we hear about money in the church, most people probably start to think automatically about you know, offering or tithing, but that's not really what I'm thinking about today when I want to reflect on money. I actually want to think about money a little bit more conceptually and think about the spiritual impact that money can have on our hearts. So ultimately, what is our relationship to money and uh, what are the dangers and temptations if we don't guard our hearts from money. And I, I kind of think maybe talking about money, especially in like a church setting, it can seem like kind of an unspiritual topic. 
I know it definitely seems like a very personal topic. It's not like a topic that we openly uh, discuss or share about. So we don't really openly talk about our relationship to money in like these church settings or Christian settings. And maybe we think it's like this worldly conversation that doesn't belong intermixed with like our spiritual conversations. And yet, when you survey how often the Bible talks about money and possessions, it seems to play a very significant uh, role with respect to our relationship to God. You just survey a lot of the parables that Jesus talks about. It talks about like investing. It talks about uh, treasuring, right? It talks about uh, being good stewards. So even just looking at the parables of Jesus, they often have to do with how we approach money and our possessions. And I think the reason for that, for why the Bible talks about it so often, is like pretty simple, but maybe could use some unpacking. And the, the answer is like money can be a very powerful idol in our lives. It's in competition with God. There is this book uh, that I read called The Theology of Money, and it's, only, it's the only book about like looking at money from a theological perspective that I've ever read, so I don't even think it's written on very much, but there's a book called Theology of Money by a guy named Philip Goodchild. It's a little dense, so I wouldn't recommend uh, that you read it. But he, he says something helpful in that, in the way he says it, where he highlights this competition between God and money. And so let me read what he says. He says this, where God promises eternity, money promises the world. Where God offers a delayed reward, money offers a reward in advance. Where God offers himself as grace, money offers itself as a loan. Where God offers spiritual benefits, money offers tangible benefits. Where God accepts all repentant sinners who truly believe, money may be accepted by all who are willing to trust in its value. Where God requires conversion of the soul, money empowers the existing desires and plans of the soul. Money has the advantages of immediacy, universality, tangibility, and utility. Money promises freedom and gives us a down payment on the promise of prosperity. He says money is essentially a promise or a contract. It requires faith to believe that it will fulfill the promise that it makes to us. And we don't oftentimes associate the language of faith when we think about money or when we think about financial systems. But if you really think about the concept of money, that's really what it's based on. You have to put your trust in it that it will do what you think it will do. And if you think about money along these terms, then you come to the conclusion it's kind of like a religious system where you have to believe in it through faith, right? And therefore, that's why money competes with God for our hearts. I only say this to highlight the fact that money is something that is deeply spiritual. It does have an impact on our worship, and it does have an impact on our hearts. And therefore, we want to be very careful to guard our hearts with respect to how money can not only enslave us, but consume us. And I am sure that many of you know the potential that uh, money has uh, in terms of its impact, even on the health of our relationships. Here's where I talk about my wife. Uh, during the early years of our marriage, my wife and I, I would say our biggest conflict had to do with money. We had very different perspectives about how we ought to use our money. And to just give you an example of like our different perspectives, uh, when I purchased a car, I got like the bare minimum in terms of the features of the car. Uh, at the time, my car did not even have like the remote uh, door entry or the remote trunk entry, right? So I would have to physically take the key and like unlock my door 
And then I would have to, if I wanted to open the trunk, I would have to physically take the key and like put it in the, you know, the key thing and then unlock the trunk. And uh, that's, that's kind of how I approach, like how do you spend money in life? You just get the bare minimum, right? You be as cheap as possible. Uh, my wife, her car on the other hand, uh, she got like all the cool features, right? She had the leather seats, she had the heated seats, she had like the, the sunroof, she got the V6 engine, right? So she had like all these um, things and her perspective is like, well, if you can be more comfortable, like why not spend money and be more comfortable? Like why suffer when you have like these groceries and you gotta put the groceries down and get your keys out and then open the trunk? Like why would you do that, right? So that's kind of a nutshell in terms of like the different mentalities we had when we first got married and so you can see these perspectives obviously clashed. Now back then, during my more immature days, uh, I, I thought the problem was more on dollars. We didn't have enough dollars. We didn't have enough um, money in the bank account in order to accommodate all this spending. But when I reflect back on those times, uh, I should have understood that it's actually not about dollars at all, but ultimately money reflects the things that we value. And we come into conflict, conflict because uh, we value different things. So these days, when I do premarital counseling, money is one of the things that couples often disagree about, uh, how to spend money, how to view money. A lot of that is going to be shaped based on like the family you grew up in or your experiences of whether you grew up poor or you grew up affluent. Right? All of these things shape what we value, which translates into how we think money should be spent. And so for those who want to just kind of save money and save money and save money, it might mean that your value is security. Uh, you always want to save, you always want to invest, you always want to grow because you never know when a rainy day might come. You want to be as efficient as possible with the dollars that you have and this is ultimately going to give you the security that you are looking for. And for those who want to spend money and direct it towards like a nicer home, living in a nicer neighborhood, on a nicer car, spend it on some travel, on some nice restaurants, uh, on some nice experiences, then it might mean, well, your value is either comfort or your value is a sense of freedom or your value is simply that you just want to enjoy life and the experiences that life has to offer. Money reflects what we value in our hearts. And if you think about generosity, one of the reasons why generosity can be so difficult, why it can be so difficult to give away money is because this is what it does. It requires you to actually give away what you value in your heart. The more money you give away, if you value security, the less secure you feel. The more money you have and the more money you give away, the less comfort you have, the less options you have, the less uh, excitement you have in life, right? And so when generosity is difficult for us because not because of the money we give away, but because of what the money reflects. We give away the things that we deeply value in our hearts. And the reason we can't give up our sense of security or freedom or happiness is because money promises to give us these things and we've bought into it. We believe it. We think this is ultimately where we're going to find it. All of us have a certain tolerance level in terms of how much we can tolerate to give away. Therefore, we are usually generous to the degree that we can still hold on to what we truly value, right? And thus, we think we are, we might think we're generous based on the actual amount of money we give away, but that's actually not the kind of generosity that the Bible is talking about. 
And I think that's part of the complexity of greed, the sin of greed. While we know that greed is a sin, we don't oftentimes associate greed with ourselves. We can judge easily the greed in other people, but we rarely see the greed within our own hearts. Uh, greed is a little bit harder to identify within ourselves than all other, other kinds of sin. Many years ago, someone asked me, hey, why do churches always take like this hard line on sexual sin? Uh, but they don't seem to take a hard line on greed because greed seems to be the bigger problem in society. And just for context, we consider it a bigger problem because of what happened in the financial markets in 2007. It's a good point. It's a fair question. And uh, I think part of the answer is, well, it's a little bit harder to identify when we're uh, in sin with respect to greed. Uh, you murder somebody, it's pretty clear you murdered somebody, right? You commit adultery, it's pretty clear you sinned. You either did it or you didn't. But with greed, how do you know if you're being greedy, right? Uh, how much money do you have to give away in order to be free from the sin of greed? There's no concrete answer for that. Everybody's different. Everybody's circumstances are different. Someone like the widow in the Bible who offered two copper coins may not have given much, but she was probably more generous than the Pharisees who tithed and gave more than she did. And that's part of the complication of greed. In our passage, Paul talks about giving generously. And there's actually a wider context from chapter 8, which uh, I won't go into, but uh, the Macedonian churches, they themselves were poor, and what Paul says is they gave even out of their poverty beyond their means. So I think that's the kind of generosity that Paul's thinking about here. But uh, Paul here, he talks about giving generously, and we often think of giving as something that we are losing. So when we give something away, we no longer have it, we lost it. But what's interesting here is Paul doesn't look at it primarily as loss, but he uses a farming metaphor to show us that our giving is actually something that we are planting. If we are planting through our generosity, then the expectation is that our generosity is going to produce some kind of harvest. You look at verse 6, Paul says this, the point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Sowing and reaping, very common metaphors in the Bible because the world of the Bible was much more agrarian. Even though none of us, maybe there is a farmer here, but I imagine none of us are farmers, and uh, most of us, but most of us know what like a seed looks like. Most of us knows what happens when you plant a seed. Uh, last year, our family, uh, my wife is from Maryland, so we went to Maryland, and we hung out with one of her childhood friends. And her husband built like this awesome—it's like my dream, right—an awesome garden in the backyard. And he grows like a lot of fresh produce. So he got—he really got into like farm. He's a tech guy, but he really got into farming. And uh, I don't know how he did it, but. He created a new species of tomato, right? When you create a new species uh, of something, you're actually allowed to name it. So he named it after his wife's last name. Her last name is Cho, and he called it the Chomato, right? And he gave us some seeds, and he's like, here, have some Chomatoes. And uh, when we went over, right, he showed me the garden, and I could see why it's like so much fun to grow your own produce. You start off with like these tiny, tiny little seeds, you plant it in the soil, you don't see anything for uh, a very long time until eventually you start to see like a little sprout, right? That's exciting, but that's not the best part. You wait some more, and soon that little sprout grows and grows, and then you start to see some fruit, maybe some tomatoes. 
And it's not just like one fruit, but that single seed make, produces like many fruit. And the exciting part is when you, it's time to harvest and it's time to like eat what you planted and uh, you see what you, you've produced. Uh, it's like very exciting and it's very cool. But the problem is in order to get that, to that point, right, it takes like a long time of waiting. And uh, sometimes you're not sure if like what you planted, this tiny, like weak, dispensable, tiny little seed, like, you never know if it's actually going to produce anything at all. Paul uses this illustration of seed and sowing and reaping to make a point about generosity. When a farmer sows, if that farmer only sows like one or two seeds, that farmer should not expect to see a big harvest. In order to reap a great harvest, farmers have to plant many seeds. And likewise, Paul is saying, if you are lacking in generosity, you will not see much of a harvest in the end. Conversely, if you are full of generosity, then you will see a great harvest. But what kind of harvest is Paul talking about here, right? He isn't talking about the kind of harvest where maybe you invest your money, you grow your wealth. He's not thinking about things like dividends or interest or anything like that. When he talks about reaping a harvest, he's not thinking about material gain at all. Verse 10, he tells us what kind of harvest he is referring to when he says this. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. The harvest of righteousness, not greater material blessing. God's blessings are primarily spiritual and sometimes material. Paul is thinking about a harvest that is ultimately spiritual in nature. Even though God does bless us materially, those are only secondary blessings compared to the spiritual blessings we have in Christ. And if the harvest of righteousness is spiritual fruit, Paul is telling us that if planting through our generosity, that that harvest begins to grow. Uh, There's some debate as to what Paul means here by righteousness, and I'm not going to get into those debates, Uh, but the context tells us that righteousness is something that is good, and something that is desirable. We want a harvest of righteousness to increase because the fruit of it leads to all kinds of good things. Greater security, greater joy, greater peace. Uh, There is this book that was authored by two sociology professors from Notre Dame called uh, The Power of Generosity. And they're not arguing from a biblical perspective, so they're using the tools of social science to make a point, and the point is this. Being generous is actually good for us, good for our hearts, good for our souls. They say generosity nurtures love, and the one who gives, and that love, uh, that love is at the heart of what it means to flourish as a human. So we tend to think of love maybe as a sentiment, as a feeling that comes to us, uh, and uh, when we feel good, like that, that happens, like, like love does that to us, but they say it's actually the, the opposite. They say when we cultivate practices of generosity, then it cultivates love within us. So it's not like the feeling comes first and then we become generous. They say acts of generosity will actually cultivate within us love. When there is love within us, it has all kinds of positive effects on happiness, bodily health, purpose in living, avoidance of depression. And uh, they are also very careful when they define generosity. They say you can't fake generosity in order to fulfill some self-serving end Rather, you have to desire generosity in and of itself. And the desire uh, 
you have to desire the good of others through your generosity rather than using generosity to meet some kind of self-serving need. So, I don't know, tax benefits, right? Let me be generous for tax benefits. That's not good enough. You actually have to be genuinely generous. I think the book here complements what Paul is actually saying when he says generosity yields a harvest of righteousness. It creates good spiritual fruit. But Paul is not just talking about the individual impact that generosity has on the one who is generous, but in verse 11, Paul also says generosity will produce thanksgiving to God. It generates gratitude to God. Uh, And then in verse 12, Paul says, for the ministry of the service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. So notice Paul doesn't say generosity produces thanksgiving toward the one who is generous, but he says generosity produces gratitude that is ultimately directed towards God. Why is that? Because he knows everything that we have is ultimately given to us by God. We have what we have because of God's grace. Now let's play devil's advocate a little bit. That's probably not the default way that people think about money and possessions. We say, I work really hard at what I do. I work really hard in my job, and I am sure uh, many of you, if not all of you, work very hard in what you do. And because you work very hard, there's a sense like I feel entitled to this money that I work very hard for. Uh, that's, what, right, that's what we think when we believe the world is uh, a meritocracy. A mentor of mine published a book on generosity, and he makes a point about this. And, you know, his son just went to college like two years ago, um, during the pandemic, actually. So because he was about to enter freshman year during the pandemic, obviously he didn't physically go to his first year of college. And so, you know, they did everything a freshman would do online. And so they had like the, the welcome ceremony, and it was done online. So this mentor of mine was able to hear the kinds of things that the school was saying to this freshman class. And he was like, the message was very predictable. They would say, congratulations, you were admitted to the most selective year in the school's history, and all your work paid off, right? But then he says, you know, if they were honest to these freshmen, this, this freshman class, this is what they should have said. You're very fortunate to have a spot here. After all, 35,000 people applied. Uh, you might be the best suited for this university, but..." We don't know that for sure. We're not certain. How do you measure people's aptitudes and achievements from a piece of paper? Some were admitted because of legacy. Others were admitted because you can pay the tuition. Still others were admitted because we need to raise our ranking, help our athletic programs, or fit a special need of the university. I know you worked diligently, but so did many other people. The admissions process is broken just between us. All that said, we welcome you and wish you the best. Right. So he's like a little snarky, and he's saying, that's probably what they should have really said. That's the reality of the situation. He's making a point that we tend to think we get to where we are on account of our hard work, but the reality is, in addition to our hard work, there's a lot of other factors that have very little to do with our merits. By virtue of being born into the family that we were born into, uh, if you were born in the United States, by virtue of being born in the United States, uh, we are probably afforded many more opportunities than other people in the world. Moreover, if you have a talent that uh, didn't necessarily come from your hard work, but eventually earned you a lot of money, where does that talent come from, right? You just had it. And for those of us who maybe grew up in immigrant families and had immigrant parents who had these small businesses, 
I suspect we know we probably don't work as hard as they did in, in their work, and yet we probably find ourselves in a better financial situation, and we have things like health insurance, we have things like retirement funds and stable salaries. So do we work hard for our money? Sure we do, but is that the reason why we have the finances that we have and the possessions that we have? By no means. We have what we have because it's been given to us by God's grace. That's what Paul means when he talks about how God is the one who supplies seed to the sower. God supplies it. If we approach our money and possessions from the perspective that it is ultimately a result of God's grace, we don't feel as entitled to it. Moreover, we will see the good in giving generously because it not only expresses love to the one whom we are giving it to, but more importantly, it generates gratitude towards God, both for the giver and the recipient. We don't really know the aftermath of what happened after the church in Jerusalem received, like Paul's making a, doing like a fundraiser for the church in Jerusalem because they were going through a famine. And uh, we don't know the aftermath of what happened to the tr- church in Jerusalem uh, after they received some relief, uh, after churches sent them money. But I imagine they would have probably understood it as an incredible display of the grace of God. Even though the funds came through these various churches, they would have understood that these churches simply did what God enabled them to do through the power of the gospel. It was God who supported them and gave freely to them in their time of need. And I'll tell you personally, I do have uh, some personal experiences being on the receiving end uh, of some very, very generous people. Uh, You know, when my wife and I got married in the most um, non-ideal circumstances related to finances, okay? So uh, when we were about to get married, we were both unemployed, and it was um, during the financial crisis where everybody was getting laid off. She was trained as a teacher, and uh, there was a hiring freeze in the public schools because, uh, you know, budgets were lower. And I had just graduated from seminary, and when you go to seminary, you have no real skills to apply to the real world. Um, so I was like, I need to find a job uh, in addition to, like, you know, uh, pastoring. I was like, how am I going to find a job when everybody else is getting laid off, right? So that, that was our life situation. Uh, and early on, we, we had committed to serve, like, the church I'm a part of now in New York, right? We made that commitment, and we had no income. So how do, how do we do that? Well, <laughs> uh, someone decided to buy uh, a, one, uh, a studio apartment in Brooklyn, kind of as an investment, because the housing market had, like, right, um, gone down. And so he was like, well, I'm buying it as an investment, but why don't you live there for free, rent-free, um, until like you kind of earn enough income to uh, like pay rent on your own, right? So that was one thing. Uh, another thing, you know, I have a friend in Japan, a friend from seminary, and uh, he went to Japan for ministry, and he just kind of randomly started sending me checks from Japan, right? I never asked him for it. I never talked about finances with him, uh, and I was like, why, are, dude? Why are you sending me uh, checks? You should, I, sh- I should be sending you checks, right? You're doing ministry in Japan. Why are you sending me checks? And he's like, I don't know. I just, um, I, I need somewhere to like uh, give my offering, and so I want to send it to you. So I kept saying, don't send it to me, right? To put it somewhere else. But he just kept sending it to me. And uh, during those early years, though, it actually helped a great deal. God used like 
all these people's generosity to, to keep us in New York and to, to do ministry in New York. And while I am thankful for their generosity, the generosity of these particular people, and I feel indebted to them for sure, I think they were doing what they believed God wanted them to do with their money, and they actually felt uh, privileged to be able to give in such a way. I don't think they felt like they were losing at all, just like the churches in Macedonia in chapter 8. And in the end, we all had great reason to give thanks to God. I had reason to give thanks to God for their generosity and, and for supplying us in a season of need. They had reason to give thanks to God that God gave them the means to be generous and to support someone in a time of need. And I think that cycle of thanksgiving is generated on account of generosity. And that's why generosity is so powerful. It's not about the dollars and the cents. It's not necessarily what the dollars accomplish, but it creates this kind of uh, wonderful spirit in our relationships, uh, in our communities, that we want to cultivate and live in. Sometimes in our relationships, whether within our families, whether within our churches, sometimes there isn't a spirit of generosity. And, uh, you know, it's more a spirit of, let me see if I can get what I want, right? That's how uh, we kind of live, maybe even in our marriages. And so uh, when you're in that kind of spirit, what do you do? You negotiate what you think is fair. You only give up what you have to give up in order to get what you want. And pretty soon, you find that a relationship that's supposed to be full of love turns kind of into this like cold business relationship where you're always negotiating, right? Without a spirit of generosity, there won't be this harvest of righteousness. And uh, beyond what we think we need based on what we value, beyond the security we think we need or the, the, uh, the joy or the excitement and the life experiences and the food that we think we need, at the end of the day, what we need is spiritual, uh, spiritual currency. We need this righteousness that Paul's talking about here. Now, Paul is obviously talking about money and possessions when he's talking about generosity, but I do think we can also expand generosity to our time and to our energy uh, and to our hearts. And uh, I'm sure there's folks in here, you feel like you're kind of treading water and you have very little capacity to give. Um, there are a few things to say about that. In the previous chapter, Paul talks about how those who are in abundance should supply those who are in need so that there's like fairness. In other words, there are seasons where we are in abundance and there are seasons where we might be in need. And when we are in a season of need, it's okay to depend upon the generosity of others. Moreover, Paul is very clear in saying our giving should be voluntary and of our own accord. So if somebody has to coerce you or force you to be generous, then it's not real generosity and it won't yield this harvest of righteousness. Uh, you can't force generosity. It has to be genuine from our hearts. That said, even if we are in a season of need, I do believe we can still be generous. Why? Because we have the example of the Macedonian churches. They were going, undergoing persecution. Uh, my guess is because of this persecution, many of them probably lost income, lost their businesses, lost their jobs by being Christian believers. And so they were very poor. And yet Paul says, out of their poverty, they gave to the church in Jerusalem um, and to help their famine. And you kind of ask yourself, how can somebody be that radically generous when you yourself are in poverty? How can you give what uh, beyond your means to somebody else? And the answer that he gives is it's ultimately through the gospel. In the previous chapter, there's an important verse where Paul talks about 
how Jesus became poor so that we might become rich in him. And he's not talking about material wealth. Again, he's talking about spiritual wealth. That verse is what drives generosity in this passage as well. Verse 13 in our passage shows us that Paul says, by their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ. The same thought is driving it. Jesus, through his death on the cross, has made us infinitely rich in him. Read Ephesians 1. It talks about having the spiritual blessings of the heavenly places. And yet in this verse, Paul is saying the same thing. It comes from our confession of the gospel of Christ. Now, in one sense, being rich or poor has less to do with our financial situation than it has to do with maybe our mindset. Uh, If it is true that Jesus died for us, if it is true that he became poor for us, if it is true that on account of his death and his work on the cross, he has given us this new life, he has given us resurrection, he has given us righteousness, he has given us forgiveness of sins, he has given us holiness, all of these spiritual benefits that come through knowing Christ. If we have been given all of these things, then here is the implication of that. If you believe that, if you are a believer, if you confess this gospel of Christ, then you are not poor. In spite of what your bank accounts say, you are not poor. On the contrary, you are infinitely rich in him. And the more you understand that, the more you believe that, the more you turn to that for your security, the more you turn to that for your joy, the more you turn to that for your peace, the more you can let go of money and be generous and cultivate a spirit of generosity, which will be much more valuable than, uh, I guess, what you're negotiating to keep in whatever relationship you have. I read this report many years ago on global poverty. In this report, you know, many of the global poor uh, were, their voices were like incorporated into this report. And it's so interesting how they understood their problem. Most of them said uh, their ultimate problem is not that they don't have access to food and water, although that may be the case. But what they would say is their struggle is they felt like they were the trash of the world. It was an existential struggle. They felt unworthy. They felt powerless. They felt ashamed. You don't have to be poor to feel those things, which means you can still feel poor while still being rich in material possessions. But the opposite is also true. You can have very little and still feel very rich. In other words, you can feel your sense of worth. You can feel empowered. You can feel like your life is full of honor and not shame. Why? Again, because of this great gospel that we confess and the implications of that gospel, that God is the one who has given us our worth that the Spirit is the one who has filled us with his power, that the resurrection has raised us up, so now we are all considered honorable sons and given status as sons. In other words, no matter what our financial situation is, all Christian believers should feel incredibly rich on account of what we have received in Christ. And it's only when you feel rich will you feel the power to be generous genuinely generous. And it's only when you know the cosmic generosity that God has shown to us 
will you consider it the greatest privilege to show your gratitude to God and the generosity that you express to one another? And I do believe the world needs more generosity. Um, I do believe our churches need more generosity. I do believe our families and our marriages need more generosity. And I do believe the power to be generous is not generated within ourselves, is not generated with a higher salary. It's generated with knowing what we have in Christ. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you have given us so much in Christ. And, you know, we confess that sometimes our our eyes are blind to it and our hearts are hardened to it. Uh, Sometimes it's so easy to focus on uh, the tangible things and the immediate things. And sometimes our anxiety is also um, driven by some of these immediate, uh, immediate things as well. Sometimes our faith isn't where it ought to be, and it's directed not towards uh, the God of the universe, but it's directed towards um, mammon, directed towards uh, the God of money. And uh, we know the promises that money uh, preaches to us all the time, and it takes your grace to be able to resist those promises, to know that they're simply counterfeits, to know that uh, they're idols that will not lead to life, but will ultimately consume us and consume our souls. And so I pray, God, that you give us freedom, uh, not financial freedom, the way that the world preaches, but true freedom, gospel freedom, that we would be free from uh, the cares and the anxieties of this world because our faith is in a God who loved us deeply, who cares for us infinitely, and has given us more than we can ever imagine in the personal work of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray.